The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. So as I said earlier, uh, we're doing a seven-week series on the five lay precepts. And um, as I said, Sharon two weeks ago did the overview last week. Susan did one on uh, consumption, avoiding intoxicants. Uh, we're going to talk about non-harming tonight, and then uh, next week, I'm not sure the order in which the other three are coming, but they are uh, taking only that which is given or not stealing, avoidance of sexual misconduct, and avoidance of harmful speech such as lies, gossip, and so forth. So those are the remaining three after tonight, and then we'll wrap it up uh, the final week with an overview and some discussion, hopefully. So. so there are five lay precepts. They're actually, I think, depending on the count, something like 227 monastic precepts um, that the monastics, and a lot of those get pretty esoteric, but we're going to leave it with the five and and focus on those. And I'll say what each of us has said each week, which is these are points of departure for ethical conduct, uh, for how we practice, for how we live our lives. They're not commandments. They're not... um, directives in that sense. They're just um, points of departure for considering in our own heart uh, how we want to live an ethical life. And in really in simplest terms, the question is, is what we are doing skillful or unskillful? Do our actions lead to freedom or more suffering? And we can really look at the precepts, I think, in terms of, of those two questions. The Pali word is sila, S-I-L-A, and it means virtue or moral conduct. And as you've heard many of us, especially Pat, say often that our practice is really fruitless if we don't build it on an ethical foundation, if there's not an ethical floor under us. It's really hard to move along on the path in terms of making progress in the practice. But what if we think about the precepts not just as simply refraining from certain actions, but also as being more aspirational, as setting an intention, a larger intention. And and I have found in working with them in my own life that by seeing them as aspirational, that they've really taken on greater meaning and and have been more accessible uh, as they've come up in my life. So I'm really talking about seeing, being more proactive in our actions So we develop and foster ethical behavior as we move along on our spiritual path. So what if we looked at, say, the precept on stealing or not taking taking that which is freely given as also a reminder to be generous, to be altruistic. Not just that we won't take what is given, but we'll also try to cultivate a sense of generosity. Or thinking about the precept that same precept of not taking what is not freely given as a a way of thinking about environmental degradation or our our environmental footprint or how we use natural resources. Really expanding it just from the, not what we shouldn't do, but also perhaps what we should do in terms of our practice and our daily behavior. Or thinking of the one on intoxicants, avoiding intoxicants is also maybe reaching out to those folks that are struggling with drug or alcohol addiction. Not just that we shouldn't use intoxicants, but can we reach out with compassion to those that are struggling with the use of intoxicants in their own life. 
So on to the topic for tonight, which is non-harming. The Pali word is ahimsa, A-H-I-M-S-A. It's interestingly, I found when I was preparing my talk that they use the same term in both Hinduism and Jainism. So in that part of the world, this notion of non-harming or ahimsa sort of came up with all three of those uh, schools of uh, spiritual practice. And in some of the writings, in some of the Pali canon, the Buddha taught that non-harming was the primary practice for achieving wisdom. That it was that fundamental uh, to think of non-harming as um, really the main practice for cultivating wisdom in our lives. And that it requires the recognition of both the inherent quality, equality of all beings. We have to accept, if we look at non-harming, we have to understand the inherent equality of all beings and the application of our compassion has to be non-preferential. We don't get to pick and choose uh, to whom we're going to uh, behave in a non-harming fashion. It has to be across the board. And that really comes from this notion of interconnectedness, that we're all interconnected, all living beings are interconnected, and if, if, if we hurt another being, we're also hurting ourselves. That there's that notion that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about of inner being, that the connection of all life and all existence really is, needs to be approached with an attitude of non-harming. Thich Nhat Hanh has said that, quote, no killing can be justified, not just by ourselves, but also by letting, not letting others harm. That we have a moral obligation, in his view, to not just not harm, but to go out of our way to make sure that others don't harm either. Now, needless to say, this precept can lead us into some very tricky waters. It's, it's a very complicated, as I got into it, and I think, I hope to show you tonight, that, that it's, it's a very challenging precept. And that it requires a great deal of discernment on our part. It requires a great deal of inquiry. We can't just sort of take it at face value. We really have to dig into it to begin to um, understand it. And that these questions, especially of non-harming, are rarely black and white. They really are not that cut and dried. They're, they're much more subtle and nuanced than that. And that again, as I said, they're not commandments. They're aspirations. We set our intention, in this case, to try to live a life of non-harming. And as you know, in, in the Buddhist teaching, there's not, these aren't derived from some um, supernatural being, it's not God giving Moses the commandments on the mountain. You know, they came from a, another human being that lived 2,500 years ago that had a brilliant mind, but they are derived from, um, from that teaching. They're not something that we're going to be punished for if we fail to obey them or rewarded in heaven for if we follow them, uh, you know, to the letter. So again, it's, it, it, the results are that um, suffering or freedom are the inevitable, inevitable results of our actions. It really comes down to that. That, that it's not that we're incurring the, the pleasure or the displeasure of, of a God. Uh, it's, that's just not part of the, the Buddhist, Buddhist view on ethics and moral behavior. What, what it does cause or create in our life is it impacts future consequences, what we call karma, so that what, as you reap, so, so shall you sow, uh, that what goes around comes around, so that our moral behavior has very real consequences, but it has to do with 
the behavior that comes back on us uh, in terms of how we've behaved. And, and we refrain from evil because it's the right thing to do. We don't refrain from evil because we're going to go to hell if, if we engage in evil behavior. And also because behaving in an evil way is a huge hindrance, needless to say, on our path. So, another point I would make is that ethics and morality are not an end in themselves. They're, they're the means to an end, and that end is freedom. We're not doing it just for the sake of doing it. We're doing it because it, it moves us along the path. It helps us cultivate wisdom. It helps us live a, a life which is um, uh, characterized by compassion toward others, toward non-harming in the broadest sense of the term. And remember those two foundational things is, is are um, uh, non uh, the ethics, I'm sorry, the ethics on one hand and the wisdom on the other. And, and those two uh, branches, if you will, are crit critically important that the more we cultivate wisdom, the greater the impact on our ethical behavior, the more we cultivate our ethical uh, behavior, the more the impact on wisdom. So they're really inseparable. Uh, we can't really have one, one without the other. So in some of the, some of the writing, some of the canon, it, it's, it's pretty clearly stated that um, this devotion to harmlessness is, is, a, is a core principle of the Buddha's teaching. It is really fundamental, as I said a few minutes ago. And it is written that non-harming is the distinguishing characteristic of the Dharma. And that for enlightened Buddhists, non-harming becomes integral to their nature. And that the principle of non-harming is a noble one. You often, in the teachings, they talk about noble people, noble actions, and that this is clearly a noble one. But if we look at it in our day-to-day -day lives, I mean, the question really becomes, how is it relevant? Where is it relevant? Um, what, if any, circumstances do we discard it or disregard non-harming? Uh, or do we ever do that? Is it an absolute precept uh, in Buddhist teaching? Is non-harming an absolute? Uh, for instance, does it, does it prohibit the use of uh, violence for self-defense? Uh, you know, or, or when violence can prevent a greater harm, a larger harm. And rarely are these situations clear and unambiguous with regard to the non-harming precept. So I'm just going to run through a, a list of situations and just take a minute with each one just to reflect on it, if you would, about thinking about non-harming and how, and, non, and not killing, uh, and how would it apply to these various situations that, that we might encounter. Certainly in our modern life, that, that notion of non-harming subsumes a much wider number of situations than certainly existed during the time of the Buddha. But for example, think about abortion. Where, how does non-harming impact our thinking about abortion? What about killing animals for food? Assisted suicide. What about a choice to kill one person if it saves another 50 lives? 
capital punishment. How does non-harming affect our, our view on capital punishment? And on a slightly different uh, angle, are we practicing non-harming if we tolerate homelessness? Human trafficking. Child abuse. Not that we do it, but do we tolerate it? Do we turn away from it? Elder abuse. Domestic assault. None of these are easy decisions, easy, easy questions. I mean, that's where this, as I said a few minutes ago, this whole notion of non-harming takes us into some very tricky waters. And as you read the canon, if you study this concept uh, throughout the Buddha's teaching, there are circumstances where it's talked about in the canon where the non-harming is absolute. There's absolutely no way of not saying this, this precept is absolute. And then in other sections of the canon, it's not treated as an absolute. So even there, in terms of the oral tradition, and then once the, the teachings of the Buddha begin to be uh, written down, there was not clarity on it. It was, it was always subject to certain situational factors that, that we all run into. And this is a very high, if not impossible at times, aspiration. Sharon talked about two weeks ago how some of these precepts really set the bar so very high, and, and this one, I think, really, really exemplifies that. But again, I would argue that it's, it's, these are aspirations. They're not commandments. We, we look into our own heart. We struggle with these questions. And then we try to do the best we can with these difficult uh, issues of non-harming. Now, in one, in one part of the uh, canon that I looked at, it was, it, this was I found interesting because it said that uh, uh, only those acts which are in in which one intends harm are detrimental or unethical. So if we don't intend harm, somehow that gives us a little bit of breathing room. Uh, so in other words, th those things which are accidental or unpreventable are, don't necessarily fall under this, this notion of non-harming. So if I'm walking in the backyard and I step on a bee, clearly that's non-harming, but it was, it was not intentional. But the emphasis in the teaching is, is that Harmlessness is ex explicitly directed both to ourselves and others. That if, if it's, if it's uh, we're, we're trying to behave ethically, we're, we're not accidentally uh, harming someone or something, uh, but we're directly looking at both how it impacts us and how it impacts all of those around us. And the, the quote from the canon is, not intend to harm self to others or to both self and others. And then it goes on to say, intend benefit for self, for others, for both, and for the whole world. So again, this idea of homelessness is, homelessness, sorry, harmlessness uh, refers both to the absence of harm, but it also refers to a loving concern, a compassionate concern for self or others. That, that has to be one of, the, one of the things that extends from this notion of non-harming. And that our motivation for harmlessness really does come from our love of others, our compassion toward others, our compassion for all beings. 
the Buddha is said to have said, one who neither kills or makes others kill is one who has love for all living beings. And of course, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the discernment of this, the inquiry around it, the way we talk about all aspects of the path, which is with mindfulness, with patience, with loving kindness, with compassion. We bring all of those practices to this question. So with that sort of background in terms of non-harming, I wanted to drill down a little deeper on one particular aspect of this. And I was uh, motivated to do that. This is a book that came out late last year by Matthew Ricard. He's a, a Buddhist monk originally from France. And it's entitled A Plea for the Animals. And the, the uh, subtitle is The Moral, Philosophical, and Evolutionary Imperative to Treat All Beings with Compassion. And uh, a friend had recommended this to me. I got the book in early December. And I have to tell you, it's a really tough read. I, I, I recommend it. But, but it is not an easy read, and it really raises a lot more questions uh, than it answers. But, but sort of coming off of that, I wanted to spend a little time drilling down on this notion of, of how we treat animals in the world, and whether, that's for, whether we use them for food, whether we use them for entertainment, for work, for any other purpose, how does that fit into this teaching about non-harming? And again, he raises very difficult questions, which I found very unsettling, uh, and, and for which he doesn't necessarily provide, provide all the answers. But I just wanted to share with you some of the statistics that he quotes, which I found startling. He says that, uh, there, that uh, each year there are over 60 billion land animals and 100 billion marine animals uh, that are killed for food, uh, uh, by humans for food, for hunting, in hunting, for fertilizer, for manufacturing, and so forth. So six, 60 billion land animals and 1,000 a a billion marine animals uh, that are killed by humans annually. And I, I think you could say that the tone of the book, at least as I read it, it, did, it didn't strike me as, as uh, he was trying to rebuke us if we eat meat or if we raise animals for profit. He was just saying, we need to have this discussion. We need to open up the discussion of non-harming to really take a harder look at not only how we treat animals, but what's the impact of that treatment on the environment, on, the, on, our, on our environmental footprint. And he really is emphasizing the inherent quality of all life. He's emphasizing that, um, that we, uh, as moral agents, are capable of extending benevolence and kindness to all sentient beings. And I think at the end of the day, he's really challenging us to not turn a blind eye to the suffering of animals, that we really need uh, to look at that. And he says that most animal suffering for us is out of sight, out of mind. And, and the question then becomes, how do we turn toward that? You know, we always talk about embracing the totality of life and not looking away, not turning away. And so he's asking us to really turn toward that suffering and then once we've done that, to make a decision in our own hearts about how we want to uh, behave going forward. 
you know, and, and I'm personally speaking, and I'm guessing for many of us, that we, we really don't want to be confronted with, with the suffering an, of animals, whether that's them, how they're slaughtered for food, how they're raised, how they're used in experimentation, how they're hunted, how they're uh, treated for entertainment. I don't know if you saw the news this week, but I guess a month or several months ago, Barnum and Bailey made the announcement they were going to retire their elephants. This week, they're going to close the circus. They're going to just, um, and I read something yesterday in the, uh, in the paper that there's concern about what are they going to do with those animals as they close the circus. You know, there's, there's a, too many exotic animals that are looking for shelters as it is, and there's a concern about what will happen to those animals that have been used for many years for entertainment. And I don't know if you've seen those ads that come on some of the cable channels for the SPCA or the Humane, Humane Society. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't like to look at those. I try to I turn away from those. I understand they're making, making an appeal, but it's just, again, my tendency is not to move toward that, but to, but to avoid looking at that, that kind of thing on TV. If, if you've read uh, Michael Pollan's book uh, that he published in 2006 called The Omnivore's Dilemma, one of the questions he raised um, is, why is it okay to eat cows, chickens, and pigs, but not dogs or cats? I mean, he says that's sort of an arbitrary line that we draw. What's the difference between, you know, having a steak and taking my dog out back and, you know, butchering her for tomorrow night's dinner? Uh, and back to Ricard's point, which is that he suggests that we really have to do some mental gymnastics to, to keep this distinction between um, you know, those animals which we keep for companionship and those animals that we use for consumption. He then goes on to talk about the environmental impact of our livestock practices. He says that every year, 775 million tons of grain and 200 million tons of soybeans, which is about 90% of the world's production, are used for animal feed while humans in other parts of the world go hungry. He says that the greenhouse gases created by factory farms and the amount of water used, uh, which he says is 45% of all water used uh, for food production, uh, comes from these factory farms that, that, that produce our food. And that it takes 600 gallons of fresh water to produce one hamburger patty. So what are then are the ethical implications of our farming practices? You know, how does non-harming influence our thinking about farming? And again, the Dharma asks us to look at all of life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, to take in the totality of it, not just that which is pleasant, but to look at the difficult parts, the painful parts, to turn toward that and then search our hearts for how we respond to that that suffering. And that when we make those decisions, Ricard argues that we should do so with all the information, all the data. Because denial and turning away really keeps us in what Tara Brock calls the trance. We're just on autopilot. We're not really in fully engaged with life. So he says that there's a disconnect between our deeper feelings of empathy 
and compassion in our behavior toward animals. And I agree. You know, I abhor farming practices in which laying hens spend their lives in a tiny cage where they can't turn around. They have to clip their beaks off so they won't self-mutilate. And uh, yet I eat eggs and egg products every week, a couple times a week. You know, I abhor the treatment of dairy cattle, which are put in these stalls and, and milked pretty much 24 hours a day until they can't produce, and w at which time they're slaughtered. And I eat dairy products every day. How, how, do I, how do I balance that? And does it matter if I go to Whole Foods and just get cage-free eggs and pasture-fed uh, dairy uh, just from pasture-fed cows? I mean, it makes me feel better, but is that really uh, the way out of this dilemma? I don't know. I don't have an answer. I have questions, but I don't have answers. And so we need to each, I think, look into our hearts and decide where and how this, this precept of non-harming applies in our day-to-day -day lives. Ricard said, says, most of us are fond of animals, but our compassion stops at the edge of our plate. And he goes on to say that our behavior is born of the fact that we ignore the continuum that binds all species, including humans, into one interconnected whole. So this inquiry into non-harming, and as, as I've talked about for the last few minutes regarding, in this case, animals, uh, is, is an ongoing inquiry. And what is the impact of our behavior on other beings and on the planet? How do we talk about non-harming and still look at the environmental impact or the impact uh, in terms of how we, how we treat animals? And this is from the Dalai Lama, he says. Nonviolence does not mean that we remain indifferent to a problem. On the contrary, it is important to be fully engaged. However, we must behave in a way that does not benefit us alone. We must not harm the interest of others. Nonviolence, therefore, is not merely the absence of violence. It involves a sense of compassion and caring. It is a manifestation of compassion. I strongly believe that we must pr promote such a concept of nonviolence at the level of the family as well as the national and international level. Each individual has the ability to contribute to such compassionate nonviolence. So I think the challenge for each of us is to consider non-harming in all its manifestations, to not turn away when these questions arise, but to look at the totality of our impact on the planet and on those other beings on the planet, and search our hearts, each of us individually, to, to set our intention with regard to how each of us decides to practice non-harming. So I want to stop there, uh, left some time, hopefully we would have some discussion, we actually have the other mic tonight, uh, but I'd just be curious if anyone wanted to uh, speak to anything that I've said or uh, talk about their own uh, practice of non-harming. Yes, would someone... Thank you. Okay. Does it work? Okay. 
Um, hi, my name is Ross. I've, I've never actually spoken here before, but uh, thank you very much for the talk. Uh, I just wanted to add, um, as a as a uh, as a vegan myself, and also as a climate change uh, a person who does research on climate change, uh, it's it's such an enormously important point. And I just wanted to add one thing, um, two things really. One, going vegan is a lot, a lot easier than it than it sounds. Uh, I was a vegetarian and struggled with many of the same things that you pointed out for a long time, especially the cognitive dissonance. Um, and I was kind of scared to try and veganism, but it turns out it, it, it's really not that, uh, it's, it's not nearly as difficult uh, as it seems. Um, and second, there's a, there's a great quote by George Eliot, uh, and George Eliot says in Middlemarch that uh, fulfilling one's duty is like helping an overweight friend who's just broken his leg right inside your gate, which is to say it's something that we kind of reluctantly undertake. Um, but I've found that in the last year, because I've only been a vegan for about a year now, along with my wife, um, I, I actually get a whole lot of pleasure out of it. It's not just something I, I reluctantly or solemnly undertake or uh, uh, do with a sense of high-mindedness and official purpose, but the longer I've done it, the more I've been able to delight in doing it. And I think that that's kind of integral to the whole no harm thing. Uh, just like you, I turned away from the uh, Humane Society videos and the, the factory farm videos for a really long time and I still don't really like to see those at all. But now that I've gone down this path, I can watch videos of cows enjoying music, which <laughs> funny enough, there's a ton of them on YouTube. Cows love music. Um, without the cognitive dissonance, without feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm making that creature suffer, and, and it, it's opened up a whole new domain of, uh, of pleasure and delight for me. And so I just wanted to share that. I think it's an important analog to the no harming. Thank you. Other thoughts, comments, questions? Julie. Um. I uh, struggle with the instruction. Um, I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh specifically says that we are to not only not harm, but also help prevent others from harming. Yes. And um, struggling with the, the balance between respect for others, respect for others, beliefs, points of view, uh, agency, and also this idea that it's not only on us to protect others, but to um, extend that protection even to prevent others from harming. And, and it's just such a confusing um, idea and hard to practice. So I, I just wanted to put that struggle in the room because I know we probably are all struggling with that and just any wisdom or thoughts on that score would be appreciated. So I hope you're not asking me that. <laughs> anybody else I have a lot has, more questions than answers. Who has me. thoughts about meeting that um, challenge? Yes. 
funny because I've thought about this turning towards difficult um, situations rather than turning away from them. And for me, it's having difficult conversations with you people. Hold it for me, it's having difficult conversations with people. And um, what helped, because I had one today, and in my work, I have to, rather than avoid, I have to have difficult conversations, uncomfortable conversations with people. And I read somewhere in a book, someone said, called fear walking. <laughs> and that's really helped me to just, even though I got in touch with it, I'm afraid to have difficult conversations, but I tell myself, well, I'll just take my fear and move forward. And it, for me, it's just an inquiry now of, because um, I don't want to harm someone. That's what I've gotten in touch with. If I'm having an uncomfortable conversation, I'm afraid I'm harming someone. So I'm just sort of leaving it at that. I just want to talk about the bugs. Uh, I grew up in a family, you know, we didn't think a thing about squashing a bug, you know, an ant or a, and I was never had a phobia about bugs. It was just snakes and mice and stuff. But bugs, you know, they're little ants and so on. And I remember when I first came here and there was a conversation about this. And then you guys sold those vacuum things. <laughs> Where's Jim? Uh, for $10. Jim the little thing that sucks up a bug and then it... it it in this little tube, and then you just take it outside and open it up and let it loose. And I remember, you know, when you started talking about the not harming anything living, and I thought, then you, somebody talked about bugs, and I thought, well, for heaven's sake, you know, I always do that. And then I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't, and that is a living thing, and I, you know, but anyway, so I bought one of those. And so the first time I captured something, I don't know who was in my house, my daughter or somebody, and they looked at me strangely, you know, aren't you, like a stink bug or something, aren't you going to just squash it? I said, no, I'm just going to let it out. You know, isn't this a cute little device? But I was sort of embarrassed. But anyway, I still use it. It works really well. But it's a little more trouble than squashing it because, you know, you got to take it out. I mean, but it's not as violent. I don't know. This is very uncomfortable, and I just... You know, the business about being a, a, a vegetarian, I, I think about that a lot. I mean, I think about it. That's all I do. But I don't like to cook, and I think if I don't make meat now and then, I don't eat a lot of meat, but then what will I do for protein? And I don't, you know, and so I have all these excuses. So that's just talking about the struggle. <laughs> you know, I, I, when I thought about emphasizing this during the talk, I struggled with it a bit because I didn't want to come here and lay a guilt trip on everybody. I didn't want everybody to leave feeling, oh God, I'm terrible in my practice. But I guess what won the battle was thinking, you know, these, this is a question we all need to look at with some discernment and an inquiry. And if it makes us uncomfortable, well, so be it. You know, it's, it's certainly an ongoing uncomfortable question in my own life. Um, I don't know if anyone else has thoughts about that, about sort of how do you manage it uh, just day to day. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Um, I kind of use 
doing no harm to myself or others in a couple of spheres of influence. And one of them is for other individuals who may have harmed me or wish harm toward me or uh, that I may have some resentment for something that has happened or occurred. And I may not be able, it's like these levels of hierarchy, I, I may not be able to immediately generate compassion for that person or persons or group or loving kindness. That doesn't come as, as easily right away, but for me it's been easier to at least start with, I can at least do no harm. You know, and now this doesn't apply to everything that we've discussed tonight, obviously, because there are some things that are just plain outside my sphere of influence, and I don't have any of those answers definitively either. But within my sphere of influence toward others or animals uh, where I can make a difference, then it is fairly straightforward and has simplified it for me to think first of doing no harm. And once I have achieved that, then it seems like the natural foundation or building blocks to then move toward thinking about compassion for those individuals or groups and ultimately a loving kindness. So. I've kind of broken this down in my meditative practice to, you know, that's my starting point. I think that's why it's a great precept. And uh, I hadn't really thought about it in terms of all the permutations and combinations that were brought up tonight. So I'll, I'll do some more of that uh, in reflecting through next week and period of time. Okay, well, why don't we leave it there? Um, thanks very much. See you next time.